this time in the Old Testament scriptures that he has provided. James 1, verses 21 through 27. Hear the word of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word and we submit our hearts to it. Pray that you would enable me to preach your word faithfully and each one of us to have a listening grace and an obedient grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we already have drawn a number of principles from uh, these verses, and I could camp out probably a lot longer in chapter 1 because it's an incredibly uh, rich chapter. Uh, I, I, I could, for example, uh, spend a little bit more time uh, dealing with subjects of stewardship, verses 10 through 11, uh, rewards, verse 12, finding joy in all God's creation, all God's good gifts. That's verse 17. James is not an ascetic. Some people think of James as an ascetic, uh, you know, who constantly fasted and denied himself of everything. No, he knew how to enjoy the good things of God. Verse 17, I think, is clear on that. Or the subject of our purpose on earth, which is summed up in verse 18. Uh, and we may touch on that later. Uh, we're just not going to go through all of these. But what does it mean to be a firstfruits of all of God's creation? Maybe later on in James we'll, we'll come back to this. Or Steps on Conquering Anger, verses 19 through 20. Uh, or even the Mercy Ministries that uh, comes up in the passage we read this morning. Uh, and the reason I mention that there is a lot more in this chapter than what we're getting to is just because we've covered every verse does not mean we've exhausted this chapter. You guys have, have a lot of more fruitful study in that, you know, in your, in your families. But what I've tried to do when I've gone through various books of the Bible, I try to uh, highlight in the passages the, the things that I think our congregation needs at any given point and, and uh, not repeat you know, endlessly things I've beat to death in series before. But if there's any of those areas that you guys feel we need to hear about these, let me know. Otherwise, my inclination is to go on to chapter 2 uh, for next week. <clears throat> Today I want to give James's brief introduction to the law of God in verses 21 through 27. And he'll deal with it in more depth later on in the, in, in the book of James. But what are the benefits to submitting and persevering in God's law? It's called in verse 25 the perfect law of liberty. And it's called that because uh, without God's law there can be no liberty whatsoever. The moment a society ditches God's laws, or as Psalm 1 says, casts the bonds of Christ off of it, 
immediately what happens is one of two things. Either that nation begins to go into tyranny and a multiplication of all kinds of bureaucratic laws or it goes to anarchy, and neither one of those is a very pleasant thing uh, to have in a, in a society. Uh, people want freedom from law, they say many times, uh, but ironically what happens is when they ditch biblical law, that's antinomianism against God's law, other laws begin to creep in the back door. You get the tyranny of man's law. Uh, before um, Carl Shoemaker left, uh, what was it, five, six years ago, he cut out a comic strip and put it into a glass frame for me, and it's these two lawyers who are in front of acres of books that represent all of the IRS code and OSHA regulations and all of the laws that Congress has put, and it just goes on endlessly. And the one lawyer says to the other, and to think, it all started with Ten Commandments. And uh, I was thinking when I read that, and every time I look at that, I thought, you know, really a more appropriate uh, thing to come out of his mouth would be, and to think that it all started by rejecting the Ten Commandments. Because it's when you reject God's laws that you get this multiplication of all kinds of bureaucratic regulations because now the government, not a limited government, it becomes the Savior, it becomes Messiah. And we are living in a time of uh, a messianic state. But uh, law is inescapable, and James is going to have a lot more to say about that. But for right now, just realize that to the degree we deviate from the perfect law of liberty that God gave to that degree, we're going to abandon liberty and we're going to abandon perfection. You will not get away from law. There will be law one way or another, but it'll be the law of the individual or the law of the state. There's going to be law there. Now, before we start, let me make another observation as well. In case you're one of the ones who has been kind of nervous about the book of James, like Martin Luther was, he eventually accepted it, you know, say, okay, it's scripture, but boy, I don't like it, it's a stroy epistle, he said. In case you think that James really does not have it very clear on justification or on any other issue, I want you to realize James is Jesus' brother, and James hung around his brother quite a bit. And not only was James his brother, and not only was he entrusted by Jesus with the care of the church in Jerusalem, but Jesus quotes the sayings of Jesus more than all of the epistles of Paul put together. James understands the gospel of Jesus. James is immersed in the teaching of Jesus. And we ought not to think of this as being a, a graceless uh, book. If you throw out James, you're going to have to throw out Jesus. They are linked very, very tightly together. And so contrary to what many people think, this is an epistle on grace. But the problem is you cannot understand grace apart from law. And James knows that. And he puts the two together. He links them together. James is doing exactly the same thing with the Old Testament that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. James, James, well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, what did he do? He showed the misunderstandings that the Pharisees had of it and how they had truncated that law. He exalted the law to the point where he, he, he made people realize they could not keep the law apart from his grace. And so he was putting it in its right uh, context uh, just as uh, James is. Now, it's popular today for Christians to refer to themselves as, quote-unquote, New Testament believers. Let me tell you something, Paul and James and Peter and Jude know nothing of a Christian who rejects the Old Testament just as a New Testament Christian. I mean, that's just so foreign to uh, James. Uh, that's an impossible thought to Jesus. In Matthew, 
chapter 5, Jesus enforces even the least of the Old Testament moral laws upon the Christian until heaven and earth passes away. As far as I know, heaven and earth hasn't passed away yet. Uh, that's Matthew 5, uh, verse 19. And to think anything different would be unthinkable to Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments, he's referring to the moral laws of the Old Testament, and, and you know that least of these commandments was taking a mother bird with his, its young, says that's forbidden. Think, you know, it's very minor law. Well, it affects ecology. Very minor law. But he says, he who breaks and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches so shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's upholding all of the Old Testament, just like James does. And so in this passage that we read, verses 21 through 27, when James is referring to the Word of God or what chapter 2, verse 8 refer, uh, talks about as the Scriptures, he is referring to something that these Jewish Christians had in their hands right then and there. Well, what word is that? Well, the only word they could have had in their hands uh, prior to James being written was the Old Testament Scripture. See, this was the first... New Testament book to have been written. It was written quite early, but their Bible, when he's preaching to them and they're opening up their Bible, what was it? It was the Old Testament. And so the word of truth that James was saved by in verse 18 was the Old Testament scriptures. It was the only book that he would have had that was scripture when he was converted. The Old Testament needs to be received with meekness and implanted in our hearts. Verse 21. The Old Testament is able to save your souls. Verse 21b, it's not against salvation, it's for salvation. Um, if we fail to follow the Old Testament, we deceive ourselves. Verse 22, we need to be hearers of the Old Testament and not only hearers but doers of the Old Testament. Verses 22 through 23, we need to continue in the Old Testament laws. Verse 25. Just as the Old Testament saints are blessed in Deuteronomy 28, he pronounces a blessing upon those who obey uh, God's laws. And so even though, and that's in verse 25, even though James is a New Testament scripture, he wants us to be whole Bible Christians. He enforces the following of the Old Testament all the way through this book. And there are benefits to doing so. And I want to look at some of those benefits. The first benefit is that it frees us from the tyranny of man-made laws. It frees us from the tyranny of man because it gives a complete definition of righteousness and sin. Here in this book, he doesn't say, okay, I want you to do such and such, but you can give whatever definition you want as to what that means. He doesn't allow the state to define it, doesn't allow the parents to define it, doesn't allow the pastor to define it. Uh, he, he points to the Old Testament. Well, actually, there's two ways in which he, he defines this. If you look at verse 21... That therefore that begins that verse points back to verse 20 and indicates that sin is defined by its contrast to quote the righteousness of God. Last phrase of verse 20. In other words, God himself defines righteousness and sin. Man does not. Second way that he defines it is by contrasting sin with the word of God. In verse 21, therefore... Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, if it hadn't been for the Old Testament scriptures, they wouldn't have known, okay, what is filthiness? What is wickedness? You could, you could say, well, everybody knows what that is. No, that's not true. 
uh, when I was studying anthropology and looking at various cultures around the world, you'd be amazed at the things that various cultures call sin that the Bible calls righteousness, and they call righteousness things that the Bible calls good. For example, there is one tribe in, in uh, Irian Jaya that forbids uh, relations with your wife on o over 200 days out of the year, but homosexuality, that was the norm. That was something that was praised and elevated. You're seeing that more and more in our society. And so there's got to be a definition. What is filthiness? What is wickedness? And the Old Testament, the word that God had, had given that they had in their hands defined it. Romans 7 verse 7 says, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Where did Paul read that? He read it in the Old Testament. 1 John 3 verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, some people might say, how is that a benefit, you know? I just as soon not know that what I'm doing is sinful. But we're going to be seeing in the next point that unless you know sin, unless you know the law, you're not going to be driven to grace and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for now, I just want to point out that it frees us from the tyranny of uh, legalism. This means that when your friend comes along and tries to make you feel guilty for something that the law of God gives you the perfect freedom to do, you can be totally free from their condemnation. I grew up in a church that was actually, I spent a number of years there, I should say, because most of my time I was in the mission field, but spent a number of years when we were on furlough um, at a church that was good for the most part, and I really liked the church, but it was very legalistic in that it added a lot of the laws of man to the things that the Scripture had said. It also neglected some things from the Scripture. And so you would feel judged, you would feel condemned, if um, you uh, had a beard as a man, <laughs> uh, women weren't condemned if they had beards. But uh, if you grew a beard, if you had a glass of wine, if um, you had a TV, you went to movies, if you were a woman, you, were, you felt, felt uh, condemned if you wore lipstick or had earrings or wore feminine pants, and the irony of it was that they emphasized grace, 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 grace. We're not under law, we're under grace. And because of their misunderstanding of the connection between grace and the law, what happened is by throwing out the Old Testament definitions of the law, automatically man-made uh, definitions of law came in. And the reason for that is we are made to need law. God has built it right into us. And it's inevitable that other laws will come sneaking in. All antinomians are legalists. An antinomian is a person who's against the law of God. All antinomians are legalists. All legalists are antinomian. Now, how could that paradox come about? Uh, well, it happened in the Pharisees' lives. Uh, they had added all these man-made rules and traditions, and Christ said, you make void the law of God with your man-made traditions. Okay? They cannot coexist. You add laws to bind people's consciences automatically. They're going to come into contradiction uh, to God's laws. And Christ, he cut through that legalism and that bondage. And how did he do it? He did it by setting forth the high standard of God's law. That's how he cut through the legalism. And that's why verse 25 calls it the perfect law of liberty. It frees man from the legalism of man.
It frees us from the feelings of shame that the politically correct crowd try to impose upon you and make you feel terrible when you call homosexuality a sin. And those of you who are in business know the, the ways in which they can put pressure on in terms of thought control, you know, on what kinds of things you ought to be uh, uh, thinking. And over time, what happens is there is more and more bondage. Even what you think becomes uh, wrong in the eyes of people. More and more bondage as God's laws are thrown off. Now, some people say, okay, well, that's fine, but why does it have to be the Old Testament? I like New Testament law. I don't like Old Testament law. And what I would point out to those people is if you really are submitting to the New Testament law, you're going to submit to the Old Testament because the New Testament commands us to uphold the Old Testament law, Matthew 5, verse 19. Or um, Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Or in 1 John, it says that, Anyone who says he is united to Jesus ought himself also so to walk even as Christ walked. Well, how did Christ walk? He kept the Old Testament law. If we're to imitate Christ, doesn't that mean that we're supposed to keep the Old Testament laws? Well, I think, yes, it does. And I would also point out that if we reject the Old Testament, we get ourselves into trouble because we no longer will have any standard for many areas of ethics. The New Testament, for example says very little about moral guidelines for medicine, art, ecology, even who you can marry. Now, on that one, it does say a little bit. It says you can't marry your, your father's wife and you can't, uh, you know, homosexuals can't marry. But other than that, it doesn't deal at all with the Old Testament laws of consanguinity. It assumes you know those laws already and that you're not going to get married to your sister or you won't get married to some of the other uh, things that are forbidden uh, there. And on a host of other issues, the New Testament was not meant to replace the Old Testament. It was meant to give a messianic context to supplement, to fill out, and to explain the Old Testament. It was never intended to throw it out. And so the word or the scriptures that these Christians had in their hand before James even came to them was the Old Testament Bible. And uh, it's the... Thing that defines the righteousness of God, verse 20, defines filthiness, overflow of wickedness, in verse 21. And it's a tremendous benefit. It frees us from legalism. A second benefit that James ascribes to the Old Testament is that it has the power to save our souls. You can see that in this last part of verse 21. Now, for people who think the Old Testament is a legalistic document, that's an interesting phrase. It has the power to save our souls. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.15. He said that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now, when Timothy was a child, Jesus hadn't even died yet. So the only Scriptures he would have had would have been the Old Testament Scriptures. But Paul tells Timothy that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, people frequently think that the Old Testament has so much law in it that we ought not to be bringing it into our gospel discussions. And my contention is that nothing could be further from the truth. Until people see how sinful they are, they don't see any need for a Savior. Until people see how far off the mark that they are from God's standards, they're not going to have the conviction to, to run to, uh, to Him. L.E. Maxwell said that the law forces us to grace. The law crowds us to Christ. And he wrote a book, Crowded to Christ, 
where he points out how the, the law is absolutely essential to the gospel and you've got a counterfeit gospel if you don't have the law of God, which is the schoolmaster leading people to Christ. It's a wonderful book. More and more evangelists today are recognizing that the old-fashioned way of evangelizing is far better, where you preach the law and you keep preaching the law and keep preaching it until people are broken by that law. And they're brought under conviction of sin. And when they do that, they are finding that these people are far more soundly converted. They have far greater joy, far greater appreciation of the gospel of Jesus Christ than people who are told the gospel, the good news, before they even know that they need to be saved. Paul says the laws are schoolmaster leading us to Christ. Let me quote J. Gresham Machen. He said, A new and more powerful proclamation of law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. Men would have little difficulty with the gospel if they had only learned the lesson of the law. As it is, they're turning aside from the Christian pathway. They're turning to the village of morality and to the house of Mr. Legality, who is reported to be very skillful in relieving men of their burdens, making Christ master in the life, putting into practice the principles of Christ by one's own efforts. These are merely new ways of earning salvation by one's obedience to God's commands. And they are undertaken because of a lax view of what those commandments are. In other words, he's saying... Uh, in order to be able to keep the law, people have truncated the law, made it achievable, at least achievable for a few people. And the few people who have achieved it become like Pharisees, okay? We can keep the law, you ought to be able to t do it as well. They don't have to rely upon God's grace. So anyway, Machen goes on to say, so it always is. A low view of law always brings legalism in religion. A high view of law makes a man a seeker after grace. Now, that assumes we're going to have a proper attitude to be able to benefit uh, from the Old Testament. If we're convinced that the Old Testament is an empty, legalistic book, we're not going to have the faith or the humility to be able to benefit from the Old Testament. And so verse 21, last clause, goes on to say, and receive, there is the faith, and receive with meekness, there is the humility, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See, God's Word has a power to transform people from the inside out when it is received with faith and with humility. Uh, unfortunately, what happens, though, is that it never gets implanted into people's hearts. Luke chapter 8 in the parable of the sower talked about the seed that was scattered in different areas. And he spoke of seed that fell onto hard, stony ground. And he said, the birds come along and pick it up and take it away. And he says, that's what the demons do with the word of God that's implanted into people's lives. Satan takes that away. Let me quote from him. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So it wasn't implanted. It wasn't implanted. And Jesus says, Satan does that lest they should believe and be saved. He does everything he can to keep the preached word out of your heart, to keep the word that you read in your devotions out of your heart. He tries to snatch it out so that you then just go away and forget and forget about it. But when it's received, it has the power to take you, not only save you from hell, but to save you from bondage to sin, to save you from all kinds of grief that sin brings on. And so never think of the Old Testament as a graceless document. The Old Testament is full of gospel. And it is full of law. And you cannot understand the gospel apart from the law. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why you need to constantly be bringing the word of God 
uh, to your children's lives. When you discipline them, don't just discipline them in terms of your authority. Always bring the Word to bear as to where their changes should be and how they're out of accord with the Word. Uh, how they have them memorize the Word. And you need to engage in a systematic program of memorization as well because when the Word is implanted and it takes root, it does sanctify us. It does change us from the inside out. But it's got to be put inside. Now let's go on to the third benefit. It spares us from self-deception by defining reality. And let's read verses 22 through 24. But be, beer, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man that he was. He likens the word to a mirror. And so you hold a mirror up to yourself and you see exactly what you look like. You hold it up to the door and you hold it to the window and you can see that it defines, it describes reality. It's reflecting back exactly uh, what is out there. Now, some of you probably would not like and don't like the looks of yourselves when you first get up in the morning and you're looking into the mirror and you'd rather not look at the swollen eyes and the disheveled hair but you put up with the truth because you want to be able to prepare yourself to not look quite so scary when you go out into the world, right? And in the same way, the Word of God is like that mirror. It shows things in us and it shows things in society that are not comfortable. We don't like what we see, but we persevere in looking into that mirror because we're wanting to adjust and change and conform ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we're not so scary when we go out into the world, right? And so God's Word is a mirror. It keeps us from being deceived about reality. And it does this by giving us every truth, statement, every axiom that we would need to understand ourselves, society, the world that is around us. As Peter says, it gives to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. As Paul says in that passage we quoted earlier, you know, the scriptures that, that Timothy was brought up on, he said, those scriptures... Even if we didn't have the New Testament, those scriptures are sufficient to thoroughly equip us for every good work. You can find it in the Old Testament. Thoroughly equip us for every uh, good work. And without the Bible, we're in the dark in so many areas. We'd go bl down blind alleys in our research as scientists. Why? Because we're deceived. We're not looking at the world in light of the reality that God is reflecting with that mirror. Uh, we, we would... Uh, go, we'd spend all kinds of money needlessly on counselors that are not biblical because these counselors are not, again, defining reality the way God defines reality. And there's so many ways in which we can have uh, self-deception. Uh, perhaps, it, 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 well, let me, let me just read you Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 indicates that self-deception can only be stopped by the revelation of God. He says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He's saying the reason that the word of God can expose the self-deception that's in our heart is because the one who gave it is at work with that scripture in our life. So he trans transitions, you know, in terms of our grammar, we might think, no, wait a shake. He's talking about the word of God and he's just transitioning straight into what God does. Well, it's because the word of God is God speaking, right? But he is saying that word keeps us from self-deception. And so if you've got children who are lying 
And you don't know which is true and which is not true. What you do is you bring God's word to bear and you trust God to be able to take away that deception. Let me just give you an example. In Isaiah 28, in response to those who said, we have made lies our refuge and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. They felt they were secure. God says, don't believe it. I can expose all of those lies in an instant. He said, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. God's Word has an ability to needle in and get in. I remember I mentioned Ellie Maxwell. He was just an amazing preacher at my Bible school up in Canada. And it's like sometimes it was almost like he could see into your soul and he would be bringing things, you know, that your mind was responding and making rationalizations and he'd catch that rationalization before you'd go very far, you know. But he knew, he knew how to apply the Scriptures as a mirror in, 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 into your life. Now, the fourth benefit is that the Old Testament brings both liberty and blessing. It wasn't intended to take away our pleasure, make us miserable and unhappy. No, it was intended to be the very opposite. It was intended to make us delighted, be filled with blessings, have liberty, way beyond anything that a libertarian could have. Verse 25, it says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful but a doer of the work this one will be blessed in what he does. And so, first of all, he defines it as the perfect law of liberty. And then he says, this was designed to bring blessing into our lives. When God gave the law on Sinai, he had just rescued Israel from the tyrannical laws of Egypt. They were under law governing everything that they did. You know, the, Egypt the Egyptians... Uh, you know, were constantly taskmasters who were telling them what to work, where to go, when to get up, when to go to bed, when to eat, which babies would live and which babies would die. They were under the cruel laws of man. And when God rescued them from that, re uh, redeemed them from that tyranny, he didn't take them to no law. No, he took them to better laws. Law is inescapable. And so what he did is he blessed them with laws that produced liberty and gave them blessings. He gave ten commandments, which were kind of the fence posts. So here's one commandment over here, and there's another commandment, and all of the case laws that are given in Deuteronomy were the fence that connected all of those, all of those uh, big posts. And within that, he said, there's acres and acres of enormous liberty that you can do anything that your heart desires to do. But here's the boundaries that I have given to you. It was liberty that God had intended to give to them. And I love the illustration of the railroad tracks. It's true in one sense that railroad tracks are so restrictive to a train. You know, they hinder the train's movement. And if the train becomes really frustrated and saying, you know, this is ridiculous to be hemmed in by the law in this way, I think I'm going to jump the tracks and I'm going to become free and do anything that I want to do. Well, you know immediately what's going to happen is that that train is going to have the opposite of liberty. It's going to get mired in the sand and mired in the mud and be unable to move at all. It will lose all of its speed. It will lose all of its power, all of its usefulness. Well, the law of God are those railroad tracks. And God knew exactly what we needed. He made those tracks perfectly suited to us. We're talking the moral laws here, okay? And when we restrict ourselves to the laws that God has given to us, we don't add to them, 
we don't take away from them, and we continue in those laws that God has given, we have the maximum of liberty, of freedom, of usefulness, and of speed. But the moment we jump those tracks, what happens? We come into the bondage and the tyranny of man's laws. We come into the things we were not constructed to be in. So can you see how the law, even though it's restrictive, can actually bring liberty and power into our lives? Okay, James is saying nothing different than Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse, the blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you. And over and over again, God says, you deviate from those railroad tracks, it's going to be curse, it's going to be misery. You stay on the tracks, blessing, blessing. In fact, Deuteronomy 28, it's just amazing, all of the blessings that he outlines there. He says, even your kneading of the bread in the bread bowl is going to be blessed. Uh, your fruitfulness, uh, he's going to bless your economics, where you're the head and the pagans are the tail. He's going to bless absolutely everything that your hand touches. Well, that's what James is saying here. He's just alluding to what the Jews already knew in the Old Testament. If we keep God's law, we continue in it, we're going to have blessings. Uh, and it's not just Deuteronomy. Psalm 1, Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Psalm 119, verse 1, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Revelation 22, 14, Blessed are those who do his commandments. You know, the whole Sermon on the Mount is uh, the, 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 the law reinterpreted that Christ gave. And how does he preface this, uh, th this laws of the kingdom? He prefaces it by saying, blessed, 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 happy are the ones who conform to the laws of God and that live it by God's grace. And so if you have been taught that the Old Testament is a book of bondage that we have been rescued from, I want you to repent of that. And I want you to say, no, this is the book that Jesus has said is a blessing. This was the Bible of the New Testament. This was the Bible of James that he says he wants us to be in so that we can find untold blessings and liberty as well. Lastly, the Old Testament helps to expose useless religion and helps to define pure and undefiled religion. And you could just see in the last verses there, he says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. If you don't have a definition of what it means to bridle your tongue, you just tell a person, okay, bridle your tongue. And then he begins to do it in a humanistic way. Uh, he, he's violating the spirit of what James is talking about because the Old Testament gave thousands, it's over a thousand explicit references in the Old Testament to how we ought to communicate in a godly way. Okay? So he's saying there's a boatload of information in the Word that you've got in your hands that's open on your laps as I'm preaching to you. There's a boatload of information on how to bridle your tongue. Don't just be importing your humanistic ideas into this, into this New Testament passage. The uh, same is true of visiting the... Uh, the, 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 um, the orphans, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Okay, so if we don't have the Old Testament defining that, what ends up happening is we have a social action that is governed by the world's ways of doing things. And so you've got a lot of Christians who have gone into politics and they've not looked to the word that James has talked about of visiting the orphan and the widow. Instead, they've looked to Karl Marx and they've got socialism that governs the way in which they, uh, they operate. 
Can you see what I'm driving at? These phrases have to be defined somehow. And they're defined by people in many different ways. James is pointing people back to the Old Testament. The same is true of the last phrase. What does it mean to keep oneself unspotted from the world? If you don't have uh, the whole Bible to define that, uh, you're going to have a very limited uh, understanding of that, of that phrase. And so if the lips and social action and the hearts of modern Christians could be conformed to not just the New Testament, but the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, I think the church of Jesus Christ could turn the world upside down like it did in the first few centuries. Because we would have definition. It wouldn't just be empty labels that anybody can throw in what definitions they want. And so part of our calling in Omaha, I think, is to encourage the church of Jesus Christ and all Christians to return to the use of James's Bible, the Old Testament. Yes, the New Testament. We want to submit to every part of it. And anything that the New Testament changes from the Old, praise Jesus, we, we submit to that. But the Old Testament gives a definition. And, if, and I just urge you to, to embrace the Old Testament, encourage others to do so. Amen. Father God, we thank you. We thank you and bless you for the Old Testament that has given us so much guidance and direction. Father, if it was not for that, uh, we would be limited in understanding what your will is in so many areas of life. And yet, with the Old and the New Testaments together, Father, we have a complete word that gives to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we love you for that. We bless you that you have given to us a light to light our paths. You have given to us uh, blueprints by which every citizen and every level of society can operate. And Father, I pray in the basis of these laws and of these gospel, we would go out and we would disciple the nations themselves to obey all things that have been commanded in your word. And Father, I pray that you would make us effective. We recognize that keeping the law in ourselves is impossible. Apart from your grace, we would fail. And so I pray that we would be ones who so see the standard of your law so high that unless we embrace your supernatural grace in our lives, we could not keep it. Help us not to have a low view of the law, but a high view that we might value your grace the more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.